If you look at the top of the bulletin, it says today's service is Palm and Passion Sunday. So we're making a shift now away from the joyful celebration of Hosanna's to the Passion story. So listen for the word of the Lord as it comes to us from the gospel according to Luke. I'm reading from some selections from chapters 22 and 23. And then they seized Jesus and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. But Peter was following at a distance. When they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. Then a servant girl, seeing Peter in the firelight, stared at him and said, This man also knows Jesus. But Peter denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. Now the men who were holding Jesus began to mock him and beat him. They also blindfolded him, kept heaping many other insults on him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, gathered together, and they brought him to their council. They said, if you are the Messiah, tell us. All of them asked, are you then the Son of God? He said to them, you say that I am. Then the assembly rose as a body and brought Jesus before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, we found this man perverting our nation. They were insistent and said, he stirs up the people by teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee, where he began, even to this place. Pilate then called together the chief priests, the leaders, and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is perverting the people, and here I have examined him in your presence and have not found this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither has Herod. But they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! As they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country, and they laid the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A great number of the people followed him, and among them were women who were beating their breasts and wailing for him. Two others also were, who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Jesus. When they came to the place that is called the skull, They crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And the people stood by watching. But the leaders scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. The word of the Lord. So whenever we get to this particular Sunday in the church year, Palm Sunday and also Passion Sunday, we have our work cut out for us. By that I mean we're covering a lot of liturgical ground. By that I mean we're moving from A celebration, wonderful celebration to a procession, 
and to a cross. You probably remember the story of little Johnny who was about five years old and had to stay home from church on Palm Sunday. He was sick with fever. He had a sore throat, a runny nose. And when his family returned home, they all had their palm branches and he asked what they were for. And Johnny's mother explained, well, people were waving the palm branches. And as Jesus walked by, they were saying, Hosanna. As he came by in the donkey, we said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord with the palm branches. And little Johnny said, oh, great. Great, the one Sunday I don't show up for church, Jesus actually shows up. (laughs) We're covering lots of emotional territory today in this service too. There is this celebration of Jesus with palms. And then we have this horrific story. um, The realities of Holy Week. We are moving from singing and rejoicing and waving palms to the disciples deserting Jesus, the persecution and beating of Jesus, and the suffering and then the death of Jesus. And on this day, I'm dealing with another question that I got from several of you. How can suffering ever be redemptive? Palm Sunday looks like a celebration, but we know that the procession goes to the suffering and the death of Jesus. So it's a good day to think about suffering and Jesus' suffering and whether or not suffering can be redemptive. So we'll think first about suffering. To live this life is to encounter suffering. I'm not talking about your team not making the NCAA tournament. I'm not talking about your team losing in the last second on a game that you should have won or your team coming home early last night. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about real suffering. Real suffering. See, the journey from our mother's womb through the birth canal initiates us from the very beginning into trauma, And the challenges that we face in life. It's a good thing we don't remember that journey, isn't it? As wonderful as life can be. As full of blessing and joy and possibility and promise life can be. It always includes suffering. We try to protect ourselves from it. We work to protect our kids from it. We would work hard to keep anybody from it. We work hard to keep our fears at bay and our worries over there so we can live without suffering. But to live is to suffer. Invariably, life includes suffering. Pain and injury, illness, setback, they're all part of life. Our bodies ache, our hearts break. And as we move through life, we gain physical scars and emotional scars and countless experiences that include, indeed, suffering. (coughs) Suffering, the wounds of our lives, the losses that we experience and never really get over, the setbacks which create such challenge to our existence, this kind of suffering, while part of life, 
is basically terrible. If we can avoid it, we do. If we can keep others from avoiding it, we want to do that. And let me just say that so often in life when suffering comes, not knowing what to say, faithful people often say the wrong thing. Suffering is certainly a part of life, but it does not give us the license to attribute all suffering somehow to God's plan. Right? God caused it. That's sometimes what we say, not knowing what to say. I think it is appalling to say that God needed another angel in heaven and that's why the car wreck happened. I think it is disdainful to attribute to God and God's will the murder of innocent people where it takes place on a college campus or in a movie theater or in an elementary school in Connecticut. I think too often people don't know what to say about suffering so they say it must all be part of God's plan and this kind of thinking offends me so much. Suffering is part of life. We live in a complicated and uncertain world. We are vulnerable to illness and pain and evil, vulnerable to dangers. Suffering is generally not what God intends for us. All those things cause suffering, but God's plan for us is not so much suffering So we shouldn't so easily attribute it to God. Now let's think about this other word, redemptive or redemption. Specifically, how can suffering be redemptive? Is it ever redemptive? The word redeem comes from the Latin word which basically means to buy back. In the most literal kind of example, needing money in an emergency, you pawn something at the pawn shop. And at some later time, when finances get better, you go back and you redeem it. You buy it back. In much of the ancient world, you could redeem the family silver, but also human beings as well. Because in the ancient world, it was not uncommon for people to fall into slavery or fall into some servitude because of a debt or a war. And that means they could be redeemed. Their life could be paid for by somebody else. Take the money and give it to the new master and the person is redeemed, bought back. The person who paid for your freedom was most likely the male next of kin in the ancient world. And for those outside of society, on the edges of society, who had no next of kin to, quote, redeem them, these people always had a sense that the Lord would redeem them. So the idea of the Lord as the Redeemer was always the hope of an abandoned or oppressed or beaten down people. This was the culture of the ancient world. So this thinking and this language gets picked up and used in the Bible, especially as the prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah talk about Israel. See, the people of Israel, according to those prophets, had sinned so much and failed so miserably that left Israel in a bad place. In fact, they were carried off into captivity, in confusion, in despair. They needed to be redeemed. The promise was strong and important. God would redeem them. 
God would buy them back from the mess that was their life. This imagery gets picked up. This language gets used also in the New Testament. The message is something like this, that we can all make a mess of our lives. Life can feel futile sometimes. Is this all there is to life? We even ask that. Can I really deal with another setback or another illness or some other season of hurt because I feel like I've had enough? We know about this. Despite our wealth and our sophistication and all of our blessings, life can feel pretty discouraging at times. This is how we might feel when we've recently buried our loved one and then the diagnosis comes. It's cancer. Or that is how we feel when we face another challenge about our health or about our children or about some new problem in our work life or somewhere else. It comes along. So the New Testament uses this language in various places. You know, says First Peter, that you have been redeemed from your futile ways. Christ Jesus has done this. Evil and suffering are real, and evil and suffering are part of life, but because of God's love in Christ, we are redeemed. Life is redeemed. That's the message. The message is something like this. We are not held forever by our burdens, by our sense of futility, by our sense of despair and heartache and loss. We are freed. We are redeemed. Though we can make a mess of our lives, Though life can be overwhelmingly difficult, the door to hope, the door to possibility, the release from our tears and our struggle, that comes from God. God's love is real. God's love never ends. God's light shines in the darkness and no darkness can overcome it. God redeems us. So how actually does this work? It's being played out in the procession from Palm Sunday all the way to the cross. From Palm Sunday to persecution to death on a cross, all of this redemption is being paid out, played out. Here's how the story goes. Jesus asked his friends to stay with him and pray in the garden. They fell asleep. Then one of his closest friends, you know the story, Judas, betrays him. And another of his closest friends, Peter, who promised to be with him, denies him, says he didn't ever know him. It gets worse. They seize Jesus. And they led him away and they began to mock him and beat him and even blindfolded him and poured insults on him. They then said, this Jesus who had been feeding the poor and giving sight to the blind and healing the lame and helping everyone, that Jesus, they said, he is perverting our nation. Did you hear it in the text? He's perverting our nation. We have found this man perverting our nation. 
And the crowds who had been following just earlier saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest, they start shouting, crucify him. Crucify him. The vivid details of this story intend to show how suffering is real, how messed up life can get. We see in this story the depth of Jesus' suffering. The details of the passion want to show us the extent of evil and cruelty and fickleness and frustration that surround us and imprison us. It's about personal acts of cruelty because Jesus experienced those. And it's about systemic issues of injustice that cripple all of us. All that's in this story. It's about how death can totally take over life and shouts of Hosanna can quickly get squashed out by shouts of crucify him. And the whole point of this story is to show how Jesus' suffering redeems us all because the evil and the cruelty, the persecution and the death here, they don't rule the day. Holy Week is full of horrific details, but the story doesn't end in Holy Week. We learn in the story of Jesus' suffering that there's nowhere we can go where God has not been already. We learn in the story of persecution and death how messed up life can get, how evil can take over. Scenarios in our lives and even reveal itself boldly in the world. We do not just have or hope for an above us God. Our God is in the midst of the suffering and the evil and the cruelty and the death. And suffering doesn't win. God wins. Evil and hatred are so much there, but they don't prevail. God prevails by going this way through cruelty and persecution and suffering and death, God redeems us, all our suffering. At the risk of sounding trite, perhaps we can think about how suffering can be redemptive in this way. As I've said, suffering is real. Suffering comes our way in various moments and in certain seasons, in small ways, in big ways, in almost overwhelming ways sometimes. The promise of Scripture is that God is real too. God is present in all of life. God goes with us through all things. God even suffers the greatest trials, the depths, even persecution and cruelty and mocking and beating and systemic injustice and death amidst us. That's the passion story. Jesus' suffering demonstrates God's suffering alongside us and not defeated by suffering and death. And Jesus' suffering then allows us to think differently about our suffering, my suffering, your suffering. Suffering is part of life, but does our suffering simply make us bitter 
Or can it make us even better? Suffering can make us bitter. No doubt. We can be bitter for a long time because of suffering, depending on what comes our way. But the passion story shows us no suffering is too much for God. Cruelty, persecution, death, God is there in the midst. Life is always held in a broader context, a context of God's abiding presence and care, a context of God's redeeming ways. Even though we may doubt it, and we do, nothing can separate us from God's love ever. All life belongs to God. That's the promise of baptism. We're claimed, we're held. That defines us. That opens the way for us to view our suffering and live from our suffering in a different way. Redeemed. Redemptive. Does suffering make us bitter or better? About two weeks ago, I sat with some of you in the Landmark Theater at the Richmond Forum and listened to two inspiring people, Mark Kelly and Gabrielle Giffords. Mark Kelly, you may know, is one of the most uh, accomplished aviators of our time. He was a jet fighter in the Navy for 20 years. He became an astronaut. And then he commanded the um, space station on two different flights. NASA's space shuttle. Kelly is married to Gabrielle Giffords, a former congressman from Arizona and the victim of a terrible shooting, a bullet to her head in Tucson in January of 2011, an incident that tore through her head, killed six people and wounded 12 others. Kelly and Giffords know a good bit about suffering, wouldn't you think? They have undoubtedly known many bitter days, many. But their life is about redeeming their suffering and working for a better world of courage, of hope, of improved gun laws, of finding life out of massive brain injury, out of destruction, out of death. We know suffering is real. It comes to all of us. The passion story shows us Jesus in the midst of suffering. Suffering alongside us, never leaving us, experiencing cruelty, experiencing persecution, experiencing even death, and redeeming suffering for God's greater purposes and God's endless, endless love. So in response to God's care, in response to God's grace, 
We seek always to be better, not bitter. Opening our lives to God's presence. Receiving God's spirit. Living into God's possibilities for us and for the world. And serving God with our lives. Following Jesus. We live as redeemed people. May it be so. Amen. Let us pray. We believe, O God, help our unbelief and move us to deeper trust and more hope and abiding love following Jesus. Amen.